Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Jim Glassman joins us from J.P. Morgan, who's given us wonderful perspective over the years, uh, over uh, jobs, over wages, and over this, quote, a fully employed America. One of your charms, uh, Jim, you were way out front on this, was seeing help wanted signs outside businesses. <laughs> uh, even I'm seeing them now here uh, in 10022. They're out there, aren't they? They're all over the place. Um, I had to travel a lot and talk to businesses that are trying to manage things. And this is the number one issue. We're trying to find people, trying to figure out how to retain them. There's some clever things going on. People are figuring out. Like raising their wages. Well, that would be one thing. But they're, uh, for example, it's hard to convince somebody. Uh, give them a 401k plan. Young people don't care about retirement plans. But they yeah, don't care my about tip point there is 42. So student yeah. loans. Student loans. Uh, some of them are clever ones are talking about paying, help paying down student loans for kids, like the, right. what the nonprofits do. And you get that okay. benefit as long as you stay at the company. John and I, we live in a rarefied atmosphere. I don't know if you, yeah. you know that. but <laughs> Didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> to to all the people coast to coast listening to this, somebody's making 38.5 or 42.7 or whatever, and they really need to get up three or four thousand dollars why aren't those conversations happening in a sub four percent america job economy yeah it's it's interesting i mean we're all anyone who grew up in the 70s and 80s and saw how this worked is surprised by it but i think I'll the say. problem is the problem is businesses are operating in the same competitive environment that workers are and i think businesses are just being really cautious about this because they don't know whether they can up the they're, they're oh, John, jump in. I got my own theory, John. Jump in here and save Well, me I think Jim's myself. touched on an important story that labor costs are going up for the employer. It costs more to employ someone in America now well, than Well, there's it a lot of benefits they years pay ago. for. Healthcare. Healthcare is one of them. And workers don't see that. And I keep asking people, well, why aren't you showing that in your paycheck? I know what the price of gas is at all my local gas stations. I don't really know what my company pays for benefits unless I go to the website. So it's not in everyone's face. And they, they tend to think, well, if you've got to pay more for my benefits, they don't tend to think of that as a pay as their part of their pay, but it is from a company's point of view. So is that a structural change, Jim, that you just don't think is being captured by the economic data? No, it, it mm. is captured. We watch it in the employment cost index measures, for example. They capture a lot of the cost of benefits, but I think for the average worker, they don't see it. And what they don't understand is why their employers maybe are being so cautious, but maybe because they're not aware of what's going on with healthcare costs and all the other benefits that, that companies pay for. Jim, let's talk about the week ahead as well. CPI, retail sales. Yep. And the chairman, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell speaking later this week as well. What's the highlight for you out of those three things? Uh, retail sales, I think, are uh, pretty impressive. Consumer trends are good. Uh, I think the CPI, to me, what's what's valuable, what's useful about what's going on with the dollar right now is it's helping to dampen some of the worries about inflation in the U.S. Maybe it's spreading it to <clears throat> your, it'll shift it to Europe a little bit and, and to China. But I think, you know, of all the things I worry about, of my, in my list of, and I don't hit, it's not a long list, the Fed is not on that list. Interesting, why? Because all the Fed's trying to do is take their foot off the gas. And I know people have gotten used to zero interest rates in the last decade, but the fact is, the Fed is really just trying to move things back to something more normal. We never know what normal is, but they're not going to go overboard, particularly with inflation well-behaved. 
Uh, you, you'll know when the Fed uh, gets around yeah. to thinking about stepping on the brakes. That's it's, not our worry right Jim, now. Jim, I know you 30 years ago were absolutely glued to what Bon Jovi was doing. Uh-huh. And they had, the, they had the number one hit 30 years ago, Bad Medicine. Okay, fine. Now, you mentioned those of us from 20 and 30 years ago are looking at this job economy and going, yeah, really? I would suggest what's changed is the direct linkage of bonus for executives to labor compensation. If they give labor a wage, now they feel it comes directly out of their large bonus uh, compensation, where 30 years ago they didn't have that structure. Yeah, that, you know, I think the bigger story though is innovation has been very disruptive for the workforce. So if you look at the what happened to the share of income that goes to workers and the share of it goes to profits and other things, it really compressed back in the two decades ago, which is why all of us economists are talking about the superstar effect. The Amazons, you know, as all of us go shopping on our phones, it's transformed retail sector. And I really think it's innovation yeah. that is driving a lot of the challenges that workers face. Uh, and, I, and I think- right. You know, I don't know how you get around. To, the way to get around that is you've got to figure out how to get people. There, there are a lot of new jobs that have opened up because of that, but you've got to get, it takes a, a lifetime sometimes to prepare for that kind of stuff. Jim so Glass, I, uh, well, okay, Jim Glassman, thank you so much. A good conversation here on, uh, on the, I get more mail, John, on this than anything else. Kevin Book joining us now. <laughs> no, Australia, what's wrong with you? Kevin Book joining us now. Clearview Energy Partners, Head of Research. What's Kevin, important, seriously, what's important on Australia is we look at it as a U.S. story. Oh, it's and a the China fact story. is Iran, you know, Europe. Oh, you're, talk, you're talking about oil. Oil, yeah. Right. It's, you know, you make a joke about it, but it's a huge deal Massively. away from West Texas Intermediate. Massively. Kevin Book joining us now. Clearview Energy Partners, Head of Research. Kevin, how have we gone from a situation where the Saudis are saying pump, baby pump, to maybe we cut through next year and we need it? Well, they're looking at a uh, seasonal lull, basically. First quarter is always weak for demand. On top of that, you have currency-adjusted prices hitting some of the non-dollar importers harder, weaker GDP. And with that, everybody pumping faster than ever expected. Russia rising to the challenge. The U.S. uh Oil's coming out of the Permian, basically on the backs of burrows, even though pipelines aren't there to carry it. Uh, and that's bringing a lot of supply to the world. So they're looking at a lush world. They're seeing some, some price weakness. Uh, the question of whether they really cut or whether they talked about cutting is a different question. We kissed uh, below 70, Brent, uh, the prints above yeah. 70 now. Uh, you know, words go far in this world. I mean, Kevin, what's so important here, and, and, and John brings it up with a discussion of Australia and, and folks out of Asia, our Australia-Asian coverage is very important in the New York evening. But Kevin, what is so important here is we forget about nations like Australia that are completely dependent on imported oil. How are they doing in this r- latest mix? Well, you know, it depends on who's imported from where. If you were buying your oil from Iran, uh, you definitely have a different sort of thinking to do. For India, you're talking about 10 or 15% of imports. Uh, for China, you're in the single digits. Really, only Turkey massively exposed. For everyone else buying oil on the open market, quality is the question. And it's the question of whether you're going to get the mediums that are going to be extremely tight as the Iran oil sanctions ramp, or whether there's, uh, there's refineries that can make good use of light. With distillate demand being the thing that's leading the barrel yeah. right now, uh, you're probably going to see less of a bid for the 
light and uh, see some of the margins compress with the, the, the distillate driving up the medium barrels. And John, this comes from a very smart article out of Sydney with the conversation uh, is the title of the blog. 52% of imported petrol comes from Singapore, 18% from South Korea, 12% from Japan. Wow. You know, like in Australia, it's a yeah. serious issue. Well, let's talk about some of the refining demand in China. Kevin, it's really difficult to get a view on what is happening with China at the moment because many people will tell you a story of a slowdown, deceleration, and potentially weakening demand for commodities maybe in the future. In the here and now, we're looking at record crude demand, aren't we, for some of the private refiners? Yeah, there's, first of all, it's an opacity problem that I don't think we can circumvent here from the States. Uh, maybe with drones and lasers, uh, you can do a better job of citing China. But uh, from, from our perspective, certainly very strong crude demand, looking like strong throughputs and not yet weakness. Uh, they are building reserves. There's always a, a chance that some of those barrels went into the ground and not into refineries. But right now, what we're seeing looks like a lot of refinery throughput. So, Kevin, there's three big stories that I think have really pressured crude over the last month. One is the issue with Saudi Arabia pumping a ton of crude, a lot of crude. The other issue is Iran and the waivers that have actually been introduced to allow some of the importers of Iranian crude to carry on importing Iranian crude. And then there's the demand picture as well, which is becoming increasingly much more of a concern on the margin as well. Kevin, of those three issues, what is the most important issue right now for the oil market? I think you probably should focus on number three, demand. At the start of this year, we talked about the U.S. driver flattening out and declining on consumption, not because of price response, but because of efficiency built into the fleet undercutting demand. That's happening. Uh, around the world, you have a more price-driven demand response. The non-OECD buyers, they buy with GDP as it rises. So as GDP slackens, demand slackens. The OECD buyers, much more price sensitive, but we're seeing increased price sensitivity in the Chinese consumption of crude and petroleum now as well, which means that with a high currency-adjusted import price, you're going to see a, a relenting in Chinese demand eventually. Within the eventually is what big oil does. I mean, we had, I guess we had hopes for a whisper of $100 a barrel. Bring it back from your international relations study to what American big oil does. Are they just assuming $40, $50 barrel oil, or can they actually set higher? Different companies have different capital discipline. The engineers, think of the U.S. oil companies as engineers. They build it to run for a long time. Think of the international super majors as traders, resource-starved, prospecting into the world. They'll trade anything, just make a margin. And think of the U.S. E&Ps basically, uh, if you will, as, as sort of the, the high-risk, high-profile, high-price break-even kind of companies. Uh, when you look at this sort of the, the, the low end of the range on the price range, you tend to see more durability in the U.S. super majors because they have break-even prices at the low end of the deck. That's been the story. And for the big <clears throat> yeah. majors too, Tom, these companies have adjusted so much in the last couple of Particularly years. Particularly on the cost side. Oh, we caught Just, up with Bob Dudley yeah. this morning, and the break-even, I forget what he said specifically, but was in and around $60, $55, yeah. $60. Kevin, we've seen big changes, haven't we? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the, the, the way that you can look at the labor force elasticity, these companies have they laid off lots of folks in 2014, still haven't hired back. Some are doing reductions in force still. They're paring all the way down every which way they can. They're gearing up for a much, a much tougher environment than the one they're in right now. I should just correct myself, not the break-even, it's what they budget for. Uh, and Kevin, just to be specific yeah, about that, not okay. the break-even, but just what they're budgeting That's for, That's right, Tom. yes, of course. It, it, it has, uh, has changed radically. A healthy, a healthy internal rate of return yeah. goes into that number, yeah. you know, 15%, 20%. What is the international oil relations 
that our cabinet officers should focus on? It's Iran, Iran, Iran. Is that the way to go, or are they too focused on Iran? Well, Iran isn't an oil issue. Iran's a nuclear proliferation and right. a regional terror issue. Um, but if you want oil to come to market, you have to think about not just Saudi Arabia, but Russia. And I think one of the stories that's underappreciated of the last six months is that the, the Trump administration did go to Russia and ask for more oil there as well. Uh, three pillars to the oil market, U.S., Saudi, Russia, can't have an Iran policy that compresses buyers of Iranian crude without it. I, I, mean, I mean, does Mr. Putin want to deliver more oil? He certainly doesn't seem to want to stop. Market share is good. On, yeah. uh, you know, if they're buying services and, and upstream costs in, in rubles and they're selling in dollars, then the world of U.S. sanctions compressing the ruble yeah. has been profitable for That's a lot a really of those companies, point. plus healthy really taxation too yeah. on the outbound. I think we're at a post-Soviet record, aren't we, Kevin, for production? We are. And they, uh, they show no signs of, of wanting to slacken any time soon. Amazing. Uh, uh, Kevin Book, thank Kevin, you so thank much. You. Just, just really superb. smart. Yeah. Really smart this morning. On this Veterans Day, it is important to speak to officials uh, across this nation, and there's no one within the Republican Party, uh, particularly with the passing of John McCain, to speak to. And the gentleman from Louisiana, Steve Scalise, is, of course, a Republican. He is focused on a return to Congress, a lame duck Congress, before a new minority moment for his Republicans. Uh, he's in the running, of course, Wednesday for leadership position. And we are honored that the congressman visits us today back in the game. One gunman, countless heroes in the fight for my life. And it's not the usual quick read. It is a carefully written effort about what he went through after an horrific shooting in Washington and far more, and always with Steve Scalise, the view forward as well. What is your view forward, Congressman? Well, thanks. My view forward is, is first of all, to, to keep getting better. I, uh, I'm down to one crutch now. I had to learn how to walk again. And, of course, I talk about that in the book, that whole process of, yeah. of going from almost dying to, to now uh, I had a scooter I needed to use to get around on. Then I had two crutches. Now I'm down to one crutch. And my next goal is to uh, to be able to walk again without uh, without crutches. Not sure if I'll be able to run again, but at least, you know, I talk about this too. The, it really focuses you on the things that are important in life. You know, and I, I love my family. I get to do I do a lot more. I've been hunting a lot more with my son and, you know, just spend a lot, a lot of time on the weekends in New Orleans with my family. And I love my job, and uh, I was I was so uh, honored to be able to get back to work right. in September of last year to you know to be in the middle of working with this president and getting things done and you know getting right. the country back on track. It's it's a passion of mine, and I get to do that as well. The medical debate became important in this election, not not that it came out of nowhere, but certainly it became dominant across the heartland of this country. How many doctors and nurses at one given moment did you have around you? Did you get over like 20 oh doctors and nurses at one time? <laughs> it was a, you talk about a team effort. I, yeah. uh, you know, I had everybody from, you know, all the trauma surgeons that uh, were at yeah. Star Hospital from Dr. Savin, his old whole team there, uh, to uh, my orthopedic, Dr. Gold. And I got to know them all by name. And, um, and then the wonderful nurses well, that took care of me, too. Were there any Democrats? There were, and, um, <laughs> you know, some of them, some of them would share their political affiliation. Oh, very did they? <laughs> they would ask, if, you know, they would ask, you know, you, you would just talk along yeah. the way. I mean, you get, you know, a lot of conversations with people and, um, you know, and yeah. it's it, it just wonderful yeah. people. 
And to me, it's right. not about what their affiliation is. It's yeah. you know they they did they were incredible professionals and uh, and took great care of yeah. me. And look, my physical therapist and occupational therapist, uh, they uh, they did well, wonders and still okay. the PT. So you, Steve, Steve, like a lot of Americans, um, I've been fortunate. I've avoided the medical issue. You haven't, and and <laughs> I'm right within in the middle that, of it. <laughs> how did it change your perception of the healthcare debate in this country? You went through the reality of our medical industry. How did it change your view forward? You know, I've always been to the belief that we have the best medical delivery system in the world, and it had some problems before Obamacare, mostly related around cost and access. But for people, whether if you were on Medicare, you like Medicare. If you had private insurance through your company, most people really like that coverage. It was, you know, people that had to go buy on their own. There was no real marketplace. And Medicaid was the most broken form of health care. So Obamacare doubled down by literally dumping millions more people on Medicaid. Uh, it took money away from Medicare. And then in the private marketplace, you literally had no options. And so health care got even more expensive. What I'd like to see us get back to is a system of real free market competition. There is no price transparency. Uh, there, you know, There's great medical professionals. But doctors shouldn't have to go check with unelected bureaucrats in Washington to figure out how yeah. to best take care of their patients. We've got to get Washington right. bureaucrats out of the way more. The paperwork that's involved in health care is unbelievable. People are scared to death of going right. to jail, so they're spending time filling up paperwork that they're not using taking care of patients. Steve Kalish, you, uh, you, you come from Louisiana, from the South, with their immense support, not only of the military, but starting uh, with the Marines as well. Uh, I, I think I saw a media distillation of the president's efforts in Paris uh, this weekend. Can you distill for us what the southern military of this nation thinks when a president, because of rain, because of exhaustion, whatever the excuses, doesn't show up at below? I, I mean, that was an extraordinary well, moment, but I want to know what Louisiana thought of that. First of all, the president's been incredibly supportive of our military. I, I see it on a regular basis. Um, from you know, look, the, the National World War II Museum is in New Orleans. We love our military. Yesterday was Veterans Day, or today we celebrate it. But and yes, we also have the 100th anniversary of armistice for World War One. And the president was very. He went to the uh, memorial. He yes. To uh, so many military <clears throat> ceremonies, and you know what, what happened in in Paris. I know. There, there are some of the European leaders that still don't want to acknowledge that he's president of the United States, and he is making our NATO allies uh, finally contribute to what they, uh, you know, to what they were promising yeah. to do, and that's a good thing. But look, the president attended the American commemoration ceremony, uh, and look, he's been wonderful to our military, and by the way, just signed a bill to give the largest pay raise uh, to our men and women right. in uniform that they've had in years, and and to give them the tools they need. I mean, last year. We lost more men and women in uniform to training deaths than the combat deaths. And by I more than a three-to-one margin. Yeah. It's, it's unreal how many well, people, I mean, you saw planes falling out of the sky because they didn't have the training parts they needed because the military yeah. was underfunded. And the president made it a point to, to address that. Right. And we in Congress passed a bill to fix that uh, just a few months ago. The president right. signed it into law. How are you going to respond to this new Congress? You need to get through a lame duck term, and then uh, you will enjoy being the minority in the House. How does that change your day to day? Well, life? I wouldn't say I'd enjoy being in the minority, but uh, <laughs> you know we still have some work to do in these last few months in the majority. 
And what are you going to do? What are you going to do in this lame duck session? The first thing we've got to do is address funding of the wall. I strongly support uh, securing our border and building the wall and using other technology to to make America safe and to give the president the. How does the president get that through the Senate? Well, you know, the the House is going to do its job and let the Senate do its job. And, you know, the the Senate's got a lot of issues they're going to have to deal with, but we've got to deal with ours. By the way, we also have a farm bill that hasn't been uh, resolved. We have a negotiation going on on a conference committee on a farm bill. The biggest issue that, that's still out there that hasn't been resolved is work requirements. And frankly, I think at a time when you see such a great economy, I mean, there are more job openings than people looking for work, and yet we're paying people not to work who are fully able-bodied. So in the Farm Bill, one of the things we say is, look, if you're able to work, then you have to go look for a job. And if there's one out there for you, you have to take it. Otherwise, you're not eligible to keep getting uh, food stamps and other kind of welfare benefits. And by the way, if you can't find a job, we'll train you for a job. But you can't just sit at home. I mean, in America, you you have the right not to want to work, but the taxpayers in this country shouldn't subsidize you for that if there's a job waiting for you. And right now there are more job openings then there are people looking for work. Let's fix this. Let's get people back into the workforce and help restore the dignity of, of work and the American dream to people. Steve Scalise, thank you so much. The book is Back in the Game, One Gunman, Countless Heroes in the Fight for My uh, Life. Congressman Steve Scalise uh, joining us today, of course, always from uh, Louisiana. And, of course, some real comments there on his medical condition as well. Right now with us, Priya Misra. Uh, as we look at fixed income with TD uh, Securities. Priya, good morning. Morning. Thanks for having me on. Um, We are closed today, and you are working away, and I'm sure you're working on a theme or a movement into next year. We're at that point where people like Priya Misra put together uh, the year-forward view. What do you do after the curve flattening of this year? What's the, the theme that you'll be focusing on into January to June? Sure. So you're right. I am uh, working on our 2019 outlook. Um, I think the theme is less about curve and more about duration, because what we've seen this year is the 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 uh, U.S. has sort of outperformed. So there's been significant divergence. U.S. interest rates have risen. The Fed hiked more than what was priced in. Now, going into 2019, the market's pricing in two hikes. The Fed is communicating three, but in an environment where global growth is slowing and we don't see any congressional action, so, uh, so no further fiscal stimulus, you have a fiscal cliff coming up uh, late 19 into early 20. Uh, my fear is that we've sort of seen the peak in yields. I mean, you know, we could certainly go up a little bit more uh, uh, so 330 is what we're looking at. But, you know, if you get to 330, 340, I think that's a good time to go long duration. So the question is really how do you start scaling into long duration uh, trades here, which is a little out of consensus. I think most people are looking at U.S. economy that's doing well. But I still look at, uh, you know, how long can this growth momentum last if the tax stimulus effect starts to fade? And we start to see some impact from higher interest rates impacting housing, impacting uh, other interest uh, sensitivities of sectors. And then I look abroad uh, for any help there, and I think global growth is decelerating. I think that's the one clear trend. So I don't think we're going to continue to diverge. It certainly has implications for FX, but I think for rates, there's going to be a time to go long duration, uh, you know, pretty soon, I think. If that's the case for investors that are more uh, d- more inclined to accept risk, do you believe that there will be a risk on feel to the market? Because with interest rates peaking, 
people are going to recognize they're not going to get more by putting their money into bonds and they're going to have to find riskier assets in order to generate the returns they need to keep their clients. That's a fair point. I think when it's clear that interest rates are bottoming, that the economy is okay. I'm a little nervous around risk just here because I think we've priced in a lot of good news in the equity market or, or in general risk assets. So by the time the market reprices and we realize that actually growth is decelerating but we're not falling <coughs> off a cliff, I think that'll be a time to go long risk. In the near term, with the Fed sort of on autopilot here yeah. almost, I think risk assets have a bit of a headwind. Are bonds as data dependent as the Fed? I, yeah, I think bonds are maybe a little bit more forward-looking uh, than the Fed. And, you know, the Fed is in a bit of a tough spot because they have to look at U.S. Uh, data. And, you know, the, the U.S. economy seems to be doing pretty well. I think what the bond market is telling you, uh, by not pricing mm-hmm. in more hikes, there are zero hikes priced into 2020, is telling you that the bond market doesn't believe that the economy can continue to accelerate here. So I think, you know, you're, you're getting a little bit more of a forward-looking view. But I, I, I think Chair Powell's comments will be pretty significant yeah. this week um, on, on Wednesday. Priya Misra, we're really quite advantaged by her perspective uh, out the time function, out one year, two years, five years. Rarely, Priya, do we talk about three-month paper or three-day paper. This year, out of 2008, we began to speak of LIBOR again. Let's talk about first principles. What is LIBOR and why did it reassert itself this year? Sure. So uh, LIBOR um, is supposed to measure uh, the cost of unsecured uh, borrowing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a measure of, uh, I, guess, uh, I guess, funding costs for the financial system. The reason it became a big deal this year was the spread between LIBOR and FED funds, or OIS, widened significantly in the first quarter. It started to widen again. Uh, now, seasonally, I would say that going into year end, going into quarter end, it does tend to widen. But, uh, but the big move in the first quarter this year was, I think, in part due to a significant amount of bill supply, as well as uh, repatriations. Um, so um, the fact that a lot of companies were, mo- were moving cash back to the U.S., they were not investing in bank paper. So the cost of bank funding went up. But separately, I think what's happening is that the Fed and global bank regulators are telling us to move away from LIBOR. So that's a theme we'll be talking about for the next many years. I'm not sure uh, uh, that 2021 is the yeah. ultimate endpoint of LIBOR, but they're trying to transition right. us away from it. Commercial paper used to be a thermometer. I think it's gone. What do you use to measure trust in the short-term paper market? Uh, you're right. I think CP issuance has, has gone down. But, you know, we would look at uh, CDS. I, th- I think bank CDS is one measure. Um, you look at uh, trading volumes to some extent in the euro dollar market. I think you can look at the front end. The thing is, there's been significant uh, increase in bank reserves in the U.S. So banks don't really need to borrow a whole lot. So I I also look at the spread between effective and um, and IOER. That's a measure of, you know, our, our reserves becoming scarce here. And then that can be become an issue, I think, for bank funding. I don't think we're there yet. Another six yeah. to nine months from here, I think that could become an issue. Do you believe that there's a dollar shortage, that there's a lack of liquidity compared to, let's say, two years ago? I think into year end, there always is. So there's some of that going on. But but the big difference from two years ago is uh, two years ago, the Fed was actually infusing reserves in the system. Now the Fed is actually letting it run off. 
So I think there is the starting um, signs, the early signs that there is a dollar shortage is showing up in the Fed funds market. Uh, the Fed seems to be somewhat in denial here. I think they want to continue to let the portfolio run off. They don't think this is systemic enough. So I think this theme will uh, will persist, will actually accelerate as reserves become more and more uh, scarce in the banking system. Are banks prepared for this? Um, I think it's very hard to be prepared. Uh, historically, there were no excess reserves in the system. But historically, the Fed never paid any interest on reserves. Also, historically, we never had liquidity coverage ratio. So I think banks are having to look at their HQLA or the high-quality liquid asset portfolio now and say that, well, the reserve component is going to come off. So then how are they supposed to replace these reserves? Is it through buying treasuries? Is it through uh, you know mortgages? So I think they're going what to do you think they'll do? more attention. I think they will have to buy some treasuries um, and they'll do more borrowing from the home loan bank system, which is why I think the effective Fed funds rate will continue to move higher. Ultimately, the Fed will have to acknowledge that they can't let the portfolio run off um, for much longer. Priya, when I look at the bond market, it just used to be simple. You clipped a coupon and there was a real rate return. Whatever the coupon was, you knew you were making money. We're miles from that, particularly in Europe. I mean, just with the idiocy of negative rates and all that. Do you just assume a permanence to the oddities of your world? Or can we get back to where somebody clipped a coupon and actually knew they made a nominal or inflation-adjusted return? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if we do get a pickup in productivity or structural growth, I think then this idea of getting positive real returns will come back. The problem is when you look at uh, long-term structural drivers of growth, demographics are not looking great. So th so that's not going to help us. I'm hoping personally that there is a pickup in productivity. We just haven't seen that data. So then you look at if we're <clears> in a low real rate environment, yeah. where are we getting more real rates? I think the U.S. is actually giving you one of the highest real rates out there in the developed world. I mean, I'm looking so at the five-year real rate, Pim Fox, and back in the 60s, it was, you know, the 2%, and there was a big balloon The 1960s, that. Yeah, right? Yeah, given, not given, the 1860s. Yeah, okay. the 1960s, and given all the distortions, it was, you know, you clipped your coupon in the 90s, and you made a People return. People don't even know what scissors are anymore, Tom. Well, I know that. Yeah, come on. You got to move on. Prius never clipped a coupon. Priya, uh, uh, save us, or save me. Uh, Right now, if there is going to be a dollar shortage on some level or there's going to be a lack or a, a slackening of liquidity, what is the best thing for an investor to do? Sit on the sidelines and wait and see what happens or do you want to be in there and be a seller? Um, you know, for risk, I'm uh, somewhat biased negatively, so I would say be a seller. In fixed income, I think you don't have to go, you don't have to take on a whole lot of risk to get some positive real returns. So if you're in three-month <coughs> treasury bills, you know, Tom's right. talking about real rates, you're actually getting some real rates. I would say stay in the front end. Uh, you can get back into risk at much better levels. Well, you know, okay, I'm going to pin you down on that. Where's the much better level in the 10-year yield? I mean, is it 20 basis points higher or is it you know, X number of Fed rate increases higher. Yeah, I think when the Fed is uh, at neutral, so another two hikes, I think, will will get us to neutral, 275 or 3% yeah. on the funds rate. I think you're supposed to extend out in duration because that's the point where the recession yeah. looks a lot more inevitable. So, you know, you're probably another 20 base points away from the tenure. Right. But, you know, right yeah. now you're getting a decent pickup in, in the very front end itself, real rates in the front end.
this has been hugely informative. Priya Misra, thank you so much. It's amazing, Pim, on, on the bond market. Priya Misra, TD Securities. This is a joy, more than a one-year visit with Tyler Brule, who runs Monocle and if, if Monocle Radio, and I've appeared on that, of course, particularly with visits to Davos, but also the hugely successful Monocle magazine, which Pim is one of the magazines that sustains and gets thicker. The physical thing yes. is something people, it's been a publishing success. a lot of success. ink, too. Has ink to it. Yes. And a, lot a lot of, of intelligence. Tyler Brule with us in celebration from Paris of his uh, uh, ninth annual, I believe it's ninth annual, yes, ninth annual Soft Power Survey. Tyler, talk with why it's so important. What is Soft Power Survey? What does that mean? Soft Power, you know, classical uh, definition, uh, Tom, and good morning, Pim. Pim, it's been forever since uh, we, we've chatted. Tom, Pim never invites me around when I'm in New York anymore. But anyway, that's, that's a side issue. Um, if you look at it in, in sort of very classic terms, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's getting your way as a nation without having to use uh, brute force, without having to, to write a check. Uh, it's how do you have global influence as a nation through the private sector because you've got strong national brands, uh, a combination of public and private sector because you have a strong cultural offering, uh, because you've got great sports teams. All of these other elements outside of right. the core political sphere that give, that give you heft on the world stage. And what's so important, folks, and why people are, are glued to this within media and with advertising and also within just global consumption and imagery is the Tyler Brule Green Arrows Up red arrows down. Tyler, let's begin with the simple idea and the tension of the weekend. France, green arrow up, U.S., red arrow down. Discuss. Yeah. Well, you will recall um, as recently as, as two years ago, uh, the United States is in the number one position. Uh, you had you know, a series of great stories, even though, of course, uh, we, were, we were on the eve of an election result. Um, nevertheless, if you look at the, the power of Hollywood, if you looked at the power of the U.S. charts at that time, if you looked at U.S. brands abroad, I think at that time, Tom and Tim, we were looking at, you know, the expansion of what, you know, Hyatt was doing, Marriott bringing their brands around the world. All of these things are very important. Um, you know, now you know, we're in a very different place. Um, you know, there's some good things happening on the U.S. West Coast. Uh, there's certainly some interesting music things happening. But one thing, you know, we were chatting about, Tom, this morning is, but I look at retail, and I'm, I'm, gentlemen, I'm standing in the middle of Place Vendôme right now, and, you know, I'm surrounded by the likes of Chanel and Van Cleef and Chaumet and Hublot and all of these, you know, international brands. And it's interesting, you know, the U.S. doesn't get a look-in and if we look at global growth right now, if we look at, you know, what is the interesting part of international retail, you know, we focus on China, we focus on Asia. It, the big play there is it's a premium play. We're not looking at, at, at a mid-market or mass play. It's the top end of the market. And who owns all of these brands, whether they're Italian-based or Swiss-based? It's France. These are, these are French brands through and through. It's the Caring Group. Uh, of course, it's LVMH. Okay, Richemont is Swiss, but uh, most of it sort of sitting in Paris. So this also really helped rocket them up the charts. We've had a much heavier weighting this year as well um, on the world of, of, of luxury and, and, and a premium offer. Tyler Brule, uh, it's always good to hear your voice. One of the things I note about Monocle is it features on a regular basis 
young entrepreneurial startup businesses from around the world with a focus on craftsmanship and artisan quality. What are the cities that you recommend people who are looking to either start businesses or expand their businesses at that level, that craftsman artisan level, what cities are the most receptive? So I think there's just two sides to that, of course, Pim. Where is there cash, um, and, and where do you find a willing and, and accepting audience, of course, uh, take your ideas into prototype stage or to hang out your shingle? And, of course, is you know, where do you have a talent pool um, and an interesting, an interesting you know, place to get going? Look, at all eyes have been on the west coast of Europe. Um, the turnaround story of Portugal has been about manufacturing, um, and you know, so many people are going to, to Lisbon at the moment. Um, so I think I think Lisbon uh, as a manufacturing base, but also as a capital base now. I mean, this is a city. They're already building a second Lycée Francais because so many French people are uh, are moving there um, as well. Of course, there's an interesting uh, tax regime in Portugal at the moment. So I would say there. I would say also I'd look up the coast uh, to, to Porto. Um, you know, Madrid is really interesting. If I wanted to yeah. go and launch a restaurant concept right now, if I said I wanted to take something maybe – Springboard it into the Latin American world, right. but you know, give it a European foundation. I would look at it at a Madrid. If we're speaking in a European context, anyway, we can talk about Asia, and North America yeah. as well. Uh, if you're just joining us, Tyler Berlay with us with Monocle. Full disclosure: I have a subscription to Tyler's Rag, and I hate to admit, uh, uh, Pim, I actually put up Tom Keen doubloons for this. It wasn't, you know, Tyler didn't like toss it to me free or something. You like can that. lift it, though. You can lift it. It's like a phone book as well. Uh, we're with Tyler Brulé, securities analysis. Tyler, General Electric, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're a small uh, industrial out of Schenectady, New York. Tyler, GE has gone 10 nine eight and is now trading with essentially no bid at $7.82. It's perfect to talk to Tyler Brulé about the cultural realities of mergers. Jeff Immelt got off the plane at CDG, and he went in there and did a French industrial acquisition. Tyler, it is about cultures that don't work together, isn't it? It is, and I think it, it, that, and there's also, it's, I think we think we forget the importance of, of longevity. I was... Um, I was actually one of the, the heads of Chanel recently. You know, a man who's been at, you know, at a family-owned business, uh, which is what? I mean, we don't quite know what Chanel uh, revenue is, but I think it's in the region of probably about 10 billion U.S. Um, and and there's, you know, there's something to be said for you know, sticking it out and being there for, for the long haul. And this gentleman said, Mr. Pavlovsky, said, you, you have to be, you've got to have people who stick around a long time to run a brand. And you can't just bring in a consultant. You can't just parachute in potentially uh, a new CFO or bolt on a new business on the side of it and think it's all going to be, you know, work deliriously and we're going to get, um, you know, either a nice share price or we're going to get, you know, an amazing spike in revenues. And, and I think we, you know, I, I you know, in this sort of world of youth and hype and millennials and all of these things, you know, sometimes actually it's all right to have been on the job for 15 years. Tyler, one of the things that happens when you're on the job for 15 years is you get that request to rebrand or redesign the public face of a company. And you've done that many times over. Why don't more companies do it when they're healthy and can adjust to the change mm -hmm. rather than reacting to problems like a sinking share price or perhaps an activist investor? Well, 
I think, Tim, that's, you know, the issue there is like you've got everyone around the boardroom table in their stretchy, comfy pants, right? Um, <laughs> if you've got an elasticated waist and everyone is around the boardroom table, yeah, we're feeling sort of comfy and good about things. So, you know, so why, why should we change it? And yeah, guess what? You know, the rebranding all in is going to cost us, you know, five or seven million, which, you know, as we know, um, is, is not that much money coming out of the gate to get going. And, and that's, that's so often the problem. Um, and I always think, you know, smart companies yeah. start to interrogate their brand early mm. on and say, look, at, is it time for not just a fresh coat of paint? Um, but, you know, do we need to look at our whether, whether we're in retail or we're an airline and we need to look right. at the fuselages of our aircraft? Yeah. Tyler, congratulations on your soft power survey. It's, it's, it's extremely important to all of business uh, worldwide. All I ask, Tyler Berlay, would you get the European companies to make bigger sizes? So maybe that I'm in the right city. <laughs> yeah. Tyler Berlay, thank you so much. He is in Paris. And of course, Monocle is his magazine. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.